धीम त धीम त कीट 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 हाय वेलकम टू स्पीकिंग ऑफ इंडियन आर्ट्स होस्टेड बाय नवात्मन In this podcast we curate voices, thoughts and experiences from artists and patrons all over the world into an ongoing dialogue that elevates our collective consciousness about the Indian classical arts. My name is Anjali and I'll be your host for this conversation. There's no question that arts and culture are good for the soul, but they're also good for the economy. The Bureau of Economic Analysis and the National Endowment for the Arts published a report last year revealing that the arts contribute about 800 billion dollars each year to US economic output. For reference, that's more than the transportation, construction, or agriculture industries. And nearly 200 billion dollars of economic activity comes from non-profit arts and cultural spaces through revenue like audiences attending events but this picture isn't entirely rosy funding for arts and cultural organizations is harder to come by in the US funding for arts education programs has been substantially declining for over a decade and minority owned arts and culture organizations today are desperately struggling Michael Kaiser, who is the former president of the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, said that although minority-owned museums and performing arts companies produce important work, the majority are plagued by chronic financial difficulties due to meager public and private sponsorship that place severe limits on what can be produced, how much can be produced, and how many people are served. This lack of funding for arts education and for diverse cultural organizations directly impacts the Indian classical arts community in the US. Currently there are about 7600 Indian classical arts schools outside of India and close to 400,000 recognized Indian classical arts performers. While the platform for Indian classical arts outside of India is growing, it's still nascent and highly vulnerable to changes in public and private funding. So, if there is this general sort of agreement that arts are important socially, culturally, and economically, then why is there a lack of available resources for specifically Indian classical arts organizations in the US? In this episode, we explore this discrepancy. try to make sense of why this is happening today and talk about what it takes to resolve this tension to seek out some of these answers we're in conversation with priya narayan a bharatnatyam artist who also ran an indian arts nonprofit um she is currently pursuing her phd in performing arts and is navatman's own grant writer my name is priya narayan I am the grant writer for Navatman. Um and my background is in you know I'm a classically trained Bharatanatyam dancer. I've been dancing since I was a child. Um I was part of an organization for many many years in Chicago and um left a couple three a couple years ago to move to the Bay Area. Um running an organization is a big deal. 
um, regardless of how big or small the organization is. And um, ultimately, I think, you know, as Indian organizations go, we all have, you know, one fundamental, you know, basic sort of outlook is that we want to share. We want to share our art. We want to, you know, share our art with not just our own communities, but with the diaspora and with those who are new to the Indian classical arts. The classical arts is where my heart is. Um, it's where what I love. I feel like my, my ability to share a narrative is more impactful and effective through the classical arts. So let's start with um, what are the different organizations and who are the people that you're writing to when you're seeking funding? Um, who is funding the Indian classical arts in the U.S. today? So, um, you know, a lot of Indian organizations get a lot of support from state councils, whether it's New York State Council, California Arts Council, Illinois Arts Council, and they have different schemes. They have like a, a big one that's really popular across the country is the Folk Arts Apprenticeship, you know, which a lot of gurus apply for with their students. Um, and quite a few like almost every year, you know, quite a few um, students and teachers, Indian arts, um, specifically in the Indian, art, Indian arts get funded that way. We apply for um, various grant makers, you know, funding organizations, foundations, family foundations, um, and basically anyone who's willing to give money to the arts, which there's a lot of money out there. You know, there are organizations that are, are being funded in the upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars um, that are, are supported by a family foundation or that are supported by different entities. Um, granted, I think things are a little bit different now in the pandemic, but generally speaking, there's a lot of money out there and a lot of that money isn't for BIPOC organizations. You know, it's it we're we're the unknown, and I'm not the only one to tell to say this. You know, we've talked about so many of us have talked about this, in the sense that granting organizations do not take a chance on BIPOC organizations for several years. Sometimes it takes a, a few years of 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 applying for grants in order to get funded. You know, and they will say, you know, we're not gonna. It's even in their like you know descriptions. If you're applying for the first time, we encourage you to apply. You may not be funded this year, but you might be funded next year. You know, and um, I've sat on grant panels before. I've seen it's not the same panelists every year, you know, so on and so on and so forth. Like, you know, it depends on their questionnaires and what they're asking and all that stuff. But um, it's very much it's, it's an uphill battle for organizations of color. Mm, interesting. Now, for our listeners who aren't uh, familiar with the grant process, can you talk us through what exactly is involved? Um, what are you asking for? How mm -hmm. are you telling the story of an Indian classical performing arts organization, um, you know, like Navathman? Um, who mm -hmm. are the competitors that you're aware of during that process? When we're applying for a grant, it can be for a project, it can be for operating funds. It can be for a variety of things. With an organization like Navatman that is a well-oiled machine, 
we're talking about an organization that has shown a proven track record of how it manages its funds. So when we apply for a project, for example, I talk about, you know, our value system is so inherent in the organization um, and it go it trickles down into, you know, our students, the teachers, the volunteers, it's in, it's embedded in production. So in part of the process, you know, um, we'll decide if we're applying for a project or whatever, and, you know, we submit a proposal and the proposal kind of, it talks about exactly this mission, vision, values, what the project is, how much it's going to cost us, where our funds are coming from. Um, the organizations want to know, these funding organizations want to know, okay, how are you going to fund this? If we're only going to give you a small piece of the pie, how are you going to fund this, whether we're there or not? Every organization, every funding organization has its own value system, right? So Navasman can have its own value system and our projects are amazing and so on and so forth. But we, if we don't fit in that organization's value system, and if we're not furthering their mission, we don't fit. We're not going to get the money. And now, especially in this push of equality and diversity and inclusion, work is being created to speak to those values. I'm not saying that that is wrong, but I'm saying that that is what's being funded. So that's just talking about one project, you know, for little bits of money. And the problem then becomes, okay, so I am one Indian organization and I'm up against 15 applications that have made it through to the final. Um, so we're constantly competing and I hate using that word because artists shouldn't have to compete against each other. And you're competing on so many different dimensions. <laughs> you're competing on the um, impact angle and the actual art that you're presenting and the diverse makeup of the organization um, and the legacy, right? The proven track record. There are so many different um, dimensions on which an arts organization has to try to, I guess, differentiate itself. Exactly. You know, if one project requires funding from three organizations, you have to, your narrative has to be built in such a way that you're staying true to the art as well as propagating the mission of three other organizations, including your own. In our discussion about the challenges and barriers that Indian classical arts organizations are up against when it comes to funding, Priya pointed out an important difference in terms of how the Indian arts are approached compared to many Western classical arts. You know, the nature of the Indian arts is interdisciplinary. And um, because it is, we don't know how to stay in one single box. As we talk about funding and kind of, you know, opening doors for the Indian arts, I think it's very important that we talk about the interdisciplinary nature of the arts that we do. So if you look at, look, if you look at education systems, and especially in the United States that have arts education, you have children learning one instrument, you know, or they're learning one dance style, but they're not, if you're, if you're learning dance, you're not learning music. If you're learning music, you're not learning dance. I think as someone gets more advanced, they, they expound 
upon their knowledge because of their interest, but it doesn't, it's not something that starts at the get-go. I mean, think about it. Like if you were a child growing up in the United States, you went to choir, which was separate. You went to orchestra or band. How is it that band and orchestra are separated? Why are they not together? You know? Like what's so different between a string instrument versus a wind instrument or a reed instrument, you know, like why are we separating? So now if we take a look at Indian classical arts, let me, let me talk, it, talk about it from a dancer's perspective because that's what I know. If you are a dancer, the first thing your dancers, dance teacher is going to tell you is go learn music. If you look at like how um, state exams are in India, like whether you're taking like a, a, a junior dance exam there's a music component to it when you learn dance in india especially you are learning music and literature and poetry and visual arts because you're you're comparing you're looking at the sculptures when you're depicting certain things right if you're depicting nataraja you have to look and, uh, and understand what he's carrying in his hands you know i did this really great um uh, performance in the museum of, uh, of at MCA in Chicago, Museum of Contemporary Art, and they have an India exhibit, and it was for Diwali. And I was standing in front of the sculptures and explaining all the sculptures and portraying them with my body, which, you know, you have the visual and then you have the motion. It is literally poetry in motion. Western art is not like that now. I think people are, you know, like I said, as they progress in their in their careers, they incorporate a lot of different things. Um, but my understanding is that we view our art forms from a very different space and a very different place and our experiences are different. That being said, when we talk with other organizations or when we're, you know, in situations where we're being compared with Western art because of their divide, we have to then divide ourselves. So in your experience then, um, do you find that funding organizations are realizing that there is a different uh, mentality when it comes to this fluid, interdisciplinary, um, broad landscape of Indian classical arts? And if so, how do they react? Right? How does this, um, you know, as you said earlier, fit their narrative? Indian arts, we are a checkbox for organizations. Um, there's a, a funding organization that, that picks a discipline every year. And I believe one year it was folk art tradition. You know, every Indian organization is sitting here running and applying for that. Not to mention just, not just Indian organizations. Then you're competing against Native American or, you know, Latin American all of these different organizations that have a history of folk dance. But you tell me, do we consider classical dance as folk? I don't think so. But that's what we are. In the Western, in the Western eyes, we are a folk art because we are the other. And we are a checkbox to show that an organization holds up their diversity end. So it's a learning experience. Um, there are some granting organizations that want to support the community aspect, and there are some that want to support the art aspect. The problem, I think, is that they see our art and they don't know how to respond to it. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, think about it. Even as an Indian person, and you're watching Bharatanatyam, if you don't have a basic understanding, it's it's kind of hard to grasp what's going on. It's so you know, it's so codified. It has its own language that even even if you have one year of Bharatanatyam, you can understand, or one year of Carnatic music, you you can grasp it. But if you don't, you don't understand the language, so you don't understand the music. You don't under the ge- understand the gestures because you don't have experience with it. It's hard to it's hard to you know appreciate it. But you can appreciate the lines and the acrobat, you know things like that. Mm-hmm. But or, or the costume, the aharia, like mm-hmm. you can you can appreciate all of those things. But are you appreciating the crux? Are you appreciating the rasa that we are trying to evoke? Yeah, that I mean that's so so interesting that you say that because. It makes me think that, like, at a certain point in time in history, even ballet was a foreign art here, right? Like, it's not an American product. And there are very few um, of what we'd call mainstream or popular classical arts today that were created here. I mean, ballet is an interesting example because ballet has its roots in 16th century Italy, and really only became popularized in the U.S. around the 1930s, even though performances were happening um, a bit before. And you think about that in relation to Indian classical dance, where you know the, the transfer of Indian dance overseas has been happening for like over a hundred years, and there were. Western artists and ballerinas, in fact, who were already supporting um, and collaborating with Indian classical artists as early as the mid 20th century with, for example, um, the Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova bringing Uday Shankar into her company and absorbing elements of Indian classical music and dance into her own productions. So, I mean, what does it take? You know, we're, we're living in a time now when there is a much more diverse audience living in the States. Um, we've had an influx of immigrants from India over the last few decades. You know, there's so much more immigration. There's so much more um, mixing of cultures. Do you find that because Indian culture is becoming more prevalent in the U.S., that the audience is sort of broadening and changing? Uh, do you feel like the platform is expanding and opening up to new sources of funding? God, I hope so. I hope it is changing. You know, um, there's so many there's so many aspects to that question, right? Like you have to talk about, um, you know, the lived experience of the immigrant community. You have to talk about where they're coming from. Our community does not encourage a journey in the Indian arts. In, that is part of the immigrant experience. The immigrant experience is, okay, we struggled to leave India. We struggled to make a, a home here in the United States. We don't want you to struggle. Dance is only a, dance or music is only gonna be a struggle. That's not to say everybody. There are so many people who have the support of their families and their support of their their teachers and, you know, they're making it work. You know, I'm making it work because I want to, for me and for many of us artists, the art 
is what drives us. It's the, it's the dedication and the commitment, the devotion to the art that takes us from point A to point B and gives us a path and a journey. But back to the audiences changing, I think as the immigrant community that came to the United States struggles with their identity, that Indian American identity, um, what part is Indian? What part is too Indian? What part is American? You know, because I don't speak the language, does that make me less Indian? If I don't eat with my hands, does that make me less Indian? What what am I what values am I teaching to my children? If I maybe if I send them to Balavihar, then they'll get what they need, you know. But then they can't share that in school. I grew up in a small town in Illinois. I had my Arangitram in Illinois, didn't tell anybody. It's a big deal, right, for a dancer. You know, I was 14 when I had mine. I didn't tell anybody from my school. They came to me on, you know, Monday morning. Hey, Priya, we saw you on the news. Why didn't you tell us? You know, but that was my own sort of, I, I shouldn't share. I can't share. My Indian life is very separate from my American life. That's very much the story for a lot of people. The Indianness comes from your community. And I think a lot of a lot of ethnicities feel this way. And I'd like to think that that's changing, you know, with YouTube, social media, people talking about it, Black Lives Matter. I think the Indian community, I think, struggles to have a cohesive entity and identity. You know, we're Gujarati and Punjabi and South Indian, you know, whatever, so on and so forth. If we, the more we unite, and we're seeing it as our generation kind of intermarries, and you know we have more interracial um, relationships, you're gonna, you're seeing more commingling. But we have more to divide us, but we don't focus so much on what connects us. And what connects us is the motherland. It's the, the cultural heritage. It's the art. It's the music. It's the language. It's the food. You know, as long as we keep, you know, perpetuating that and teaching those those um, cultural things to our children, all of, I like to call it the fun stuff, the art, the food, the music, the language, like all of that is what makes us Indian. You know, it's what makes us South Asian. And that's a whole other topic, right? Like, when are we going to really embrace that that identity of South Asian? you know, instead of dividing. This aspect of keeping especially Indian dance separate from and hidden from the rest of one's life is perhaps the residual effect of waves of colonial and post-colonial legislation in India that slowly broke the ancient links between the Devadasis and the temples. These movements drove the Devadasi dancers out of the temples and degraded their social, economic, and spiritual position. If you look at how the British rule stripped kingdoms of their wealth, you know, their view of dancers as prostitutes, we're still reeling from that, that mindset, that it was like, you know, we were, dance was considered not, it was courtesans, it was, it's why you have the abolition of the Devadasis, you know, in Madras, and 
essentially all over the country. You know, you have hereditary dancers that enjoyed patronage and wealth and land. And now so many of their lineage, their um, their children don't have bus fare. Okay, so if we think about where we are today um, and the highly uh, digital state that we live in now, given the crises of 2020, um, artists and audiences have essentially entirely moved into a virtual world um, that is not confined by time or space. Um, Does this use of digital media create new opportunity to develop and grow an audience? Um, and also, does it open new channels for, for donorship and for funding? I think the people who were already successful continued to be successful and opened up various streams of funding. I think the people who are not as well known are struggling. You have organizations that are charging fees for performances, and there are people that are going to pay fees for that performance. And then you have people who don't have the same viewership, you know, but the same talent is there. And they can't afford to charge for a performance, whether it's online or not, because no one's going to pay. I was talking about this the other day, and we were talking about how an organization, especially an ethnic organization only has such limited resources and they're going to hoard their resources for the big ticket items. The disparity in funding, and I'm still talking about an Indian organization funding Indian artists. I mean, if you have an online presence, I think you have better chances of being recognized because viewership, like the, the, the whole of the scroll, like once you're in it, you'll come across someone that you've never known. Um, and that's how so many artists got, you know, exposure is because they, you know, they developed an online presence and offered things for free so that now they don't have to. I think that is how audiences are changing because we have access to more things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people are paying for it and are artists able to thrive. They're barely making a meet. So if digital is perpetuating, exacerbating the issues that we've been talking about, where do we find the solution? Whom do we turn to to create change? Priya's suggestion, it starts with us. As Indian artists, working so hard and loving the classical arts the way that we do, only way we can continue to make sure that the arts don't die is that we make it available and accessible for everyone and that it is in the values of what we teach the next generation and that pop culture is is why can't dance why can't the classical arts be part of pop culture why can't it be mainstream 
why can't it be something that is so embedded into our lives, into the Indian American identity? We have to do it. We are responsible for our own upliftment. The other thing that is important to note is that we didn't even, us kids, us kids, big kids, didn't get here without our immigrant parents creating spaces for arts and culture you know, using their immigrant experience to create space for their children to have the American life, but without losing their Indian heritage. I just hope that, you know, as each generation, you know, appears, it is our responsibility to make sure that the food, the culture, the music gets passed down. And then hopefully it becomes embedded into American society. So it's not, you know, so foreign to see amargam being presented at the Lincoln Center, you know? And it's our job as first generation Indians, Indian Americans to, to talk about it. I think the biggest mistake I did was not tell my friends, hey, I'm doing this thing this weekend, why don't you come? By not sharing with our friends, we don't do our part. Navatman is a performing arts organization that empowers individuals to nurture their personal evolution through interactions with the Indian classical arts, and that creates a home for the Indian classical performing arts in New York City. If you like what you heard today and want to learn more or get involved, please visit us at navatman.org and follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Navatman runs entirely on support from the community, so we invite you to donate to Navatman and sustain the Indian classical arts into the future. Adina.